Psalm 2. I'll go ahead and read it for us, and then we'll enter our time in. Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And I'll be reading out of the ESV, but I'll also be reading out of the NET. And there'll be a bunch of different translations today. So um, I'll, I'll go ahead and read. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, this is a glorious text this morning that helps us to orient our lives according to what you say. So Lord, help us this morning. Help me this morning as I preach that Lord, you would anoint my words and my lips that others may see and behold you, that they, we may mutually kiss the Son, that we may pay homage to the King of kings and so find refuge in you. Help us, Lord, in this endeavor. We cannot, literally, we cannot do it on our own. So, Lord, we need you now. We pray that you would bless this time for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start off the bat uh, by giving you a study that I gave you last week, and I want to make a correction to what I said. I was wrong. Anytime I ever find an error like this, I always want to come back and say, I was wrong. Forgive me. I mentioned last week, and this is just literally my own incorrect viewing of this, these results. These are U.S. adult respondents to... The question, so the, Bible, the question was, or the statement was, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Okay, now I said last week that that was what evangelicals, this is their, which means that they're actually born-again Christians. It's not. Okay, this is what people, this is like national people. And that, that matters a lot, because this doesn't mean, these are not results from Bible-believing Christians. Okay, so I, I saw that and I was like, I need to make that. Correct. So, sorry, incorrect what I said last week. Correction, this is what the nation, the nation of the United States is going in that direction. 
But I thought it was helpful to make this correction and then lead into our time this morning. So I want to, it still matters, and it's still very, very sad to see that currently in 2022, 53% don't believe the Bible's authoritative. They don't believe the Bible's true. Now, that's not evangelicals. That's, that's just people in general. That's U.S. adults. Uh, but that matters. But I have a question for you. As, as, as we use this, I want to segue into the question I have for you. Have you ever pondered why the world or the nations are in such opposition to Christ? Have you ever thought about that? And when I say the nations, I mean the United States. The United States is just included just as much in that way. Like, like let me give you an example. Like when you're watching a movie... And out of nowhere, a character decides to take the Lord's name in vain. Have you ever just wondered, like, why? Why would they do that? Like, of all the names that person could utter, of all the things that person could say, they choose to utter the Lord Jesus' name. Why? The Bible is abundantly clear. Now, I've often wondered that. But the Bible is abundantly clear to a question like this. And, and it's abundantly clear to even results like this. We shouldn't be surprised. So I made it as though we should be surprised last week. That's incorrect. I I recant what I said last week. We should not be surprised by this, actually. This actually should be, we should be surprised this is not like 99% agree the Bible's not true. Because, here's why I say that, is because the world, and this text is showing us, that the nations are raging against God. And that includes the United States. And so I want to answer four questions and look at four different scenes that this text gives us. So it begins with the scene of looking, and if you think about this as like a, a movie reel, it's, it's best to think about it in that way. So the first scene the text is going to give us is of the nations. And then it's going to give us God's response, and then it's going to show us God's answer, and then finally there's going to be some wisdom, okay? So... So the questions I want to ask is, why does it seem the world is in such opposition? That's the first question. What is God's response to human rebellion? What confidence can a Christian have in this world? And what is the correct response to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let's start in in verse 1, and we'll, we'll walk right through those. So let's ask that first question. Why does it seem the world is in such opposition to Christ? And I want you to see the first scene. The scene is the nations. The nations. And hear, hear what this psalmist says. Now, I'm going to be reading now the NET today, the New, New English translation. That's, I thought it was just helpful, their tra- translation of this. And they say this. They say, why do the nations rebel? Why are the countries devising plots that will fail? I don't know if you're like me. I, I, growing up, I loved the Chronicles of Narnia. And there's a scene in the Chronicles of Narnia that has always gripped me as it, from, from as young as I can remember watching that movie to now, even as an adult. And it's called the scene of the great battle. And there's this scene that's beginning to form of Aslan's army, which is, which is as C.S. Lewis would put it, that's the Lord Jesus' army forming. But then you also have this opposing army that's made up of the White Witch. I've talked to, <laughs> you can tell by how often I reference the Chronicles of Narnia, that I love Narnia. But the White Witch's army, if you've ever just looked or paid attention, even to the movie, it's made up of people like dwarves, who are gangly-looking creatures, werewolves, giants, ghouls, minotaurs, sick-looking creatures, 
creatures that should come from the underworld. That's what's made of the White Witch's army. Now, when you read Psalm 2, what I want to have in your mind is basically her army. Keep that in your mind. I want to read it one more time, and I want you to keep that in your mind as you hear it. Why do the nations rebel? Why are the countries devising plots that will fail? Just see them beating their shields angrily at Aslan and his army. Why do the nations rebel? Why are the countries devising plots that will fail? The kings of the earth form a united front. The rulers collaborate against the Lord and his anointed. The nations gather for one singular purpose. And it's to be united around what? Opposition to God and his anointed. If you were to ask the psalmist, what's one thing all the nations have in common? You know what they would, he would say? They hate God. They hate him. They're not neutral toward him. From the Amazon jungles to the streets in the largest city on earth to the rural countryside, they have one intention, and that is a quest. It's a quest for freedom. Quote, unquote, around that. Freedom. The quest for freedom. And when we think freedom, we think like Americans. And we think freedom, that's good. Freedom is let freedom reign, freedom. That's a good thing. But the quest for freedom here, listen to what Psalm 2, 3 says. Now, now ESV would say, let us burst their bonds apart and let us cast away their cords from us. But I think the NET is very helpful when it says what it says. Listen to what it says. It says, they say, this is what the nations say, let us tear off the shackles they put on us. Let's free ourselves from their ropes. So what they're seeking, the nations are seeking, is a quest for freedom. And it may be surprising to you that, that they'd even say, why are they seeking freedom? What, what bondage have they been put in? Well, let me give you two ways, and I'll... I'll explain that by giving you two ways that I think they seek quests for freedom. The first is autonomy. Autonomy. And the word autonomy, as you're writing it, is made up of two words. Auto, which comes from the Greek word autos, which is self, and namos, which is another Greek word for the, for rendered as law. Literally, you could separate the two words and call it self-law. What they want is self-law self-governing and it's a desire to be a law unto oneself let me read it one more time just out of the nat verse three let's tear off the shackles they put on us let's free ourselves from their ropes and we might think well that's not that bad we don't really see that maybe around us let me tell you how we see that now we just did the counseling course the other day just yesterday and saturday and we looked at a theory that is so common, I would argue you see it in the day-to-day -day basis of interaction with people. Now, we, we didn't go into this fully, but I just want to give it to you. It's called Rogerian counseling, okay? And the basis of it translates to something like this. Don't ever tell someone what they should do. Have you ever heard that? Or don't ever instruct someone in God's word. Rather, help them discover for themselves what they should do. Have you heard things like that? I'm sure you have. This is what it would say. This is from one Rogerian counselor. This is what he says. 
Advice giving is not an adequate form of counseling function because it violates the autonomy of the personality. Do you hear it? Even in that, even in that statement, he's saying don't ever tell someone what they should do. You know why? Because you might ruin their autonomy. They might not have self-law any longer. And he goes on, the same Rogerian counselor, he goes on and he says, it has been agreed that personality must be free and autonomous. How then can one person justifiably pass ready-made decisions down to another? Ethically, one cannot do it. That's what he's saying. And we could go on and on and on. And I want you to see that autonomy, true autonomy, is the height of human rebellion. We as Christians should never look at others and think they're just pursuing freedom. Or you do you. Or it's, it's their life. You can live it however you think is best. I want to be very clear about something. These are utterly unchristian things. To the, to the fullest extent, these are unchristian ideas. And so when we see the world around us pursuing self-governing attitudes, seeking to throw off the bonds they feel, we should never support them. I want to be very clear in this. We should never support them. Now, I'm not saying we take up arms against them. I'm not saying we'll get in, get in Aslan's army and we'll fight. No, I'm not saying that. But we should see the folly that it is to serve with the white witch. We should notice something else. Here's the second piece I want you to see. So it's autonomy. Here's the second piece. It's rebellion. Freeing oneself. And I want to be very clear. I'm going to say this at one point, at this point. And I want to be very, very clear. You and I were once a part of the white witch's army. As much as you don't, so, so if you're a Christian, that means you've come from the White Witch's army and now you're under Aslan's army. But I want to be very clear. You once served with his army. You once served with her army in that sense. You once were someone who literally from this text hated God. You hated him in all his ways. Listen to the text again. Why do the nations rebel? Why are the countries devising plots that will fail? The kings of the earth form a united front. The rulers collaborate against the Lord and his anointed. So it's rebellion. It's freeing oneself. I want to give you a quote from a guy named George MacDonald. Tim Keller talks about George MacDonald a lot, and I think it's really helpful. George MacDonald was a writer who, who preceded C.S. Lewis. And this is what George MacDonald, when he talks about the principle of hell, I want you to hear how he talks about the principle of hell. He, he says this. He says, the principle of hell is simply this. I am my own. I am my own king and my own subject. I am the center from which go out all my thoughts. I am the object and end of my thoughts. Back upon me as the alpha and omega of life, my thoughts return. He goes on. My glory, my own glory, and ought to be my chief care, my ambition to gather regards of men to the one center, myself. MacDonald's just simply picking up on something. Very simple that the author of Psalms is saying here, that David's saying here, is that all the earth hates God. All of them. And if you're not a Christian here today, that includes you. Though, though you don't pick up a sword and try to fight God, in your heart you hate him. 
Listen to what he goes on and says. You know how I know that? Listen to what he goes on and says. My pleasure is my pleasure. My kingdom is as many as I can bring to acknowledge my greatness over them. My judgment is the faultless rule of things. My right is what I desire. The more I'm, I am all in all to myself, the greater I am. Now, could you define, think, think about that statement that McDonald just made. Look around you, then, and consider the hell in which we live. The literal hell in which we live. Because this is the principle of hell. And if this is true, what he's saying, and if this encapsulates what the nations are saying, trying to break off God's yoke upon them, then this means we live in, we live amidst a people that literally are dwelling in hell in that fullest extent. So I'm not asking us to take up arms. I want us to see. So that's the first scene. Now move to the second scene. What do you think God's response is to this? What's his response to this human rebellion? This might be surprising to you. It's surprising to me. Scene two. The enthroned Lord. Listen to what he says. Verse, verse four. He, that is the Lord, sits in the heavens. What's it say? And laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Or, or the, as the NET would say, I, like, I think it's very helpful with how they take it a little further. They say, the enthroned one in heaven laughs in disgust. The Lord taunts them. So, so picture with me the white witch's army that we just saw. The nations gathered together. And what's God's response? He's not going, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know what he's doing? Think about that. He laughs in derision. God laughs. That's the first thing I want you to see. God laughs. It's laughing and mocking his enemies in that sense. When the Lord surveys the field of his enemies and he sees the nations clamoring with their swords and their weapons, his response is not one of fear. His response is one of laughter. And not the kind of laughter that's a nervous chuckle. It's the kind of laughter that a potter would do if his clay pots were beginning to form a rebellion against him. You know what he would do? He'd pick up a hammer and he'd smash the clay pots. Because they're his. Because he made them. It'd be the kind of laughter that would take place if the New York Yankees were to play a t-ball team. There's not a competition here. When the Lord's enemies gather against him, he doesn't even stand up. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even get up. He laughs at their feeble weakness. But he doesn't just laugh. He also speaks. So God laughs, but he also speaks. Listen to what he says. The enthroned one in heaven laughs in disgust. The Lord taunts them. Then he angrily speaks to them and terrifies them in his rage. So he speaks in his wrath. And they're terrified. This is the same kind of terrified disposition that we see the same word for terrified is the same word that's used when Joseph's brothers realize who Joseph is. If you remember that story, Joseph was given over into slavery by his brothers and then he becomes king. He becomes the second in command in Egypt. And then all of a sudden, Genesis 45, 3, listen to what they see. Joseph said to his brothers, (laughs) so this is Joseph now telling him, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers could not answer because they were dumbfounded before him. 
dumbfounded. The one they tried to kill is now sitting enthroned. And they realized in that moment how utterly they had no hope. How dumbfoundedly terrified in that moment they were. But notice what the Lord speaks. This is what's so interesting to me. He doesn't say, well, let me just pick up my hammer and I'll come down and take care of this. Listen to what he says. Verse 6. He says, as for me, this is the Lord speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, Zion, just so we're clear, is, the, is, is basically like when you think about Zion, I want you to think about Jerusalem. Or when you th- hear Zion even, think about d- the Davidic throne. That's really what he's, he's saying here. Now, this psalm is what's called a coronation psalm, which means that it would been, have been read around the time of someone being enthroned to, king, to, to be a king. The problem is, and we'll see this, it doesn't make any sense as to actually being used for any king. Because you'll see here just in a minute. So this is what the Lord says in response. He says, as for me, I have set up my king in Zion, my holy hill. So first scene, we see the witch's army gathering, clamoring. We go to the Lord. What's he doing? He's laughing. He's not lifting a finger. He's just going to say, don't worry. I've set up my king. That's what he says. So there's the first scene, second scene. Here's the third scene. Scene three. It's of the anointed son. Now I want you to notice verse of the anointed son. So I want you to notice verse um, seven. Um, I'm sorry. Um, Yeah, verse two. It says that they have taken counsel against the Lord and against his anointed now, the word anointed is the same Hebrew word, that we, and most of you probably know this, but it's the Hebrew word anointed, which in Greek would go to Christ. So it's basically Messiah. So when he says that they're against the Lord and against his anointed, we could insert right there, they're against the Lord and against his Messiah. Okay? So this should be like clear, like, like Jesus indicators. That this text is saying in this moment... That this is referring to the Lord Jesus. And the reason why I say I don't think this psalm would have been used to coronate David or any other king is it's too grandiose. It's it's too large of of a picture of what we're seeing. And this is what the son says. Listen to what the son's words are. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, this is verse 7, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, this verse right there, verse 7, is picked up, I don't know the number of times, but it's picked up many times in the New Testament in reference to the Lord Jesus. So I want you to see three things about the anointed son. I want you to see first the son's rehearsal. The son's rehearsal. And it's his rightful place. The son who's sitting on the king's throne on earth is rehearsing what God has said to him. And he says... You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, if you're an insightful Bible reader, you're going to say, wait a second, I've heard language like this before. And if you you recall then to Jesus' baptism, when when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, this is what is, is read. Matthew 3, you don't have to turn there, it's up on the screen. Matthew 3, 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water... And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now listen to the voice. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, 
with whom I am well pleased. Now in the military, they have, they have something called uh, the chain of command, which is very simply the, the chain by which command happens. So you have generals who talk to, and I probably shouldn't have started down this path because I don't know the next person, but the general gives, go, go for it. There it is. Chain of command, right there. Brigade, brigader, see Elias if you want to know more about the chain of command. But you, you start at general and you move down the line. Now in a battle, an officer would take, come to take authority. And they would need to show they have some sort of right to be in charge. And now if this is broken, they call it breaking chain of command, right? If you break chain of command, what this means is authority is lost somewhere. We've lost the authority. We don't know who's in charge. It becomes a whole big mess. And what I want you to see is that the son's rehearsal here is him declaring his rightful place. And I want you to see in this, when we hear this said in verse 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. I need you to think about the Lord Jesus in his fullness. But it's not just his rightful place, it's not just his rehearsal, it's also his inheritance. So I want you to see in verse 8, the son's inheritance. Listen to what he says in verse 8. He says, ask of me... And I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Now that ask of me there, that's the Lord saying to his anointed, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. God the Father is giving as an inheritance to his son the the nations. Now this means something for us. This means a lot for us. We could circle up here for a while, but I want you to see very simply... That this is not, the Lord Jesus' lordship is not purposeless. He has a purpose in his lordship. Meaning that he has a specific purpose amongst the nations. That every day, all the nations, whether they want to or whether they don't, will one day bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. This means that you don't have to make Jesus lord of your life. This means that Jesus is Lord of your life, whether you like it or not. And if you're not a Christian today, that probably makes you be very angry. Within you, you're probably very upset. So you don't need to make, I think, and I, again, hear me right. There is a place where you need to make Jesus Lord of your life to kiss the Son, as we're going to talk about. But I want you to dwell on this for a second. You do not need to make Jesus Lord of your life for him to be Lord. His lordship pervades you and me and all of us. His lordship is simply acknowledging the true reality of the world. So that's the son's inheritance. Listen to the next piece. The son's victory. The son's victory, which is the righteous conquest. Listen to what he says the son will do. He says, you will break them with an iron scepter. You will smash them like a potter's jar. Now, some may take verse 9 to say that we should take part in a holy war. Don't do that. Please don't take up arms. That's not what this text is calling us to do. But I want to ask the question, what confidence does a Christian have in the world? Specifically, what confidence can we have in 2023? Now, if you remember the book of Acts... This, this passage specifically is quoted, and I want us to see the same application for us. 
Now, now Peter and John, if you remember in Acts 4, we re, it was read this morning, they were preaching Jesus, they were healing people, and they were brought in by the council, and they were said, do, do not speak in this name anymore. They were threatened, they were charged not to speak, but listen to what they say. In Acts chapter 4, it will be on the screen. This is their prayer after they came back from being imprisoned. This is their prayer. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, now he quotes Psalm 2, Why did the, nation, the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Then listen to what they say in verse 27. For truly in this city they were, there were gathered together against your holy spirit servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now do you see what, he does, what they do there? They say, okay, we see Peter and John were taken in. They were, they were told, do not speak of Jesus anymore. They were said, do, stop this. Listen to what they, take, they apply this to. They say, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, Israel, were like those nations banging on the sword, banging their swords, banging on their spears. And he says in verse 28, to do whatever your hand had, pla- had predestined to take place. But what do you think they would pray for in this moment? That's a pretty bleak picture. They're gathering here in this room praying together. Probably, probably about this number, maybe, maybe a few more. The rest of the world's against them. They know it. They just acknowledged it. What do you think they'd pray for? Listen to verse 29, because it's striking. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. That's the threats of all those around them. And grant to your servants, that's them, to continue to speak your word with all boldness. I don't know what I would do right now if someone came and, and took one of you and took you to prison, but I don't think the first thing I would ask for is boldness. But what they're doing right here, if you notice, they are not saying, oh no, what are we going to do? What if someone else is going to go to jail? What, what are we going to do? I don't know why this is happening. We need to get the Republican back in the White House. This, this, like, can you imagine what we would do? They don't do any of that. They say, now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with what? Boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What these men picked up and did in this moment, men and women, they saw the Lord's victory. They saw what the psalmist is wanting us to see. Is that the Lord, he will have victory. Whether me and you ever see it, it doesn't matter. The Lord's victory on the cross assured them that they should just pray for boldness to speak. So brothers and sisters, I think it's the same for us. Inasmuch as we're connected to the Lord Jesus, we will conquer someday. Whether you see it, whether we experience it in our lifetime, it doesn't matter. But this should cause us to be bold. And listen to what happens in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
Brothers and sisters, may we be a people who see the oppression of the enemies of God, then look upon the victory of our Son, the Son of God, slain for sinners, and conclude we need boldness. And if you're taking notes, and this is just at the top of the page, I want you to see this. This is the other thing they realized. Since there is no refuge from him, you must find your refuge in him. I want you to hear that again. Since there's no refuge from him, meaning that all of the nations, what's going to happen to the nations? Here's a hint, verse 9, you shall break them, that's the sun, shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Have you ever hit a clay pot? It just crumbles. Sometimes, Sometimes you just set it down too hard and it breaks. And he's saying the Son is coming to do that. That someday we have seen salvation. Salvation's already happened. What he's coming for next will be judgment. And so since there's no refuge from him, you must find your refuge in him. And he concludes. Now the psalmist concludes with one last scene, and I want you to see it. Scene four. This is the last scene. It's wisdom for the nations. I thought one one commentator was very helpful. He said, In scene two, we see the Father. In scene two, we see the Son. And now in scene four, we hear the wisdom of the Spirit speak. Listen to what he says. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, if you remember for Psalm 1, if you look back to Psalm 1, the man, it says, uh, verse 5, Therefore the wicked shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That, that, is, that is what I want us to see today. That since there's no refuge from him, you must find your refuge in him. And so... Now, now notice verse 12, what he says, and I want to clarify something. He says, kiss, kiss the son. And the NET would say, uh, to give, give sincere homage. Now, when we think about that, I'm not literally saying we need to somehow kiss Jesus in some weird way. I hope none of us think that. But in older days, when a person would come, when, when they would come into a king, they would come and they would kiss the king's ring to show that they were, they were submitting to his reign, his sovereign rule. And kissing the son would be an act of reverence. But I want to distinguish between something. I want to distinguish between two kinds of kissing. The first kind of kissing is a hypocritical kind of kissing. So it's a hypocritical kiss. And it's self-seeking. And brothers and sisters, we see this every time. You know when you see this? You see this kind of hypocritical kissing every time a tragedy strikes. People will say, we need to pray. We need to seek God. And they're right. (laughs) See, here's the beauty of it. They're right. It's just in those moments, they're doing it for what? Self-seeking. There's another person who kisses the Lord Jesus in a very hypocritical kiss, and I want to bring him to your attention. Mark 14, we see Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' darkest hour, a man that had walked with Jesus for two years. Listen to what it says, Mark 14, 43, 46. It says, immediately he was speaking. He was still speaking. That's Jesus. 
Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, that's Judas, had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Now listen to what Judas says to him. When he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. So just because you're kissing the son, I want to be very clear about something, does not mean you're in a right relationship with the son. And there's a very real temptation for us to associate ourselves with the Son of God for our own personal gain. Jesus warns in the scariest passage in all of Scripture. He says, many will come to me on that last day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And what's he say? Depart from me. I never knew you. Judas is the quintessential example of this. He was in charge of the money bag, meaning that he would have been the one handing out money to the poor. He was the one who was offended when he saw an expensive ointment lavished on the sun. Brothers and sisters, every vain, hypocritical kiss of the Son of God will be revealed. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not two weeks from now, maybe not a hundred years from now, but someday it will be revealed. And it sounds something like this. Lord Jesus, I'll obey you if. Fill in the blank. I'll obey you. I want to obey you if you give me the following. And then fill in the blank. Whatever's filling in the blank, that is what you're serving. I'll obey you, Lord. Yeah, 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 of course. I'll, I'll do that if you bless me. I'll obey you, Lord, if you keep me safe. If you keep me healthy. Brothers and sisters, this is the hypocritical kiss. And since there's no refuge from him, you must find your refuge in him. So how do we respond? What hope is there? And it's simply this. It's just to kiss the son. And it's the wise response. Brothers and sisters, you were at one time an enemy of God. And if you find yourself today sitting there hating hating God and being in opposition to him, then heed the scripture's words. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. In your flesh, apart from the sacrificial blood of Jesus shed for you, you are an enemy of God. In your flesh, apart from the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ in your place, you are an enemy of God. So kiss the son, brothers and sisters. Repent. Turn from your sins, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And I would call this befriending the son. The writer of Hebrews picks up the same thing. This is what we'll end with. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Notice the way he even says that. This is not a turning away that will happen instantaneously. This is not a turning away that happens overnight. It's like when you're driving and you just slowly fall asleep at the wheel. He says, lest you drift away for it. Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape 
if we neglect such a great salvation. So brothers and sisters, don't neglect the great salvation. The Lord Jesus, in his kindness to us, the Son of God, and we're encouraged here to kiss the Son, but I want you to notice something. The Son has first kissed us. This is not in you to do this. This is not in you to find your refuge in Him. The Son of God, the very one in this scene, this third scene that we see the Son, He sat under the frown of God, the Father, so that we may receive the smile of God. He experienced the wrath of God so that we may experience the grace of God. And since there's no refuge from Him, hear me rightly, There is no refuge from him. You must find your refuge in him. Befriend the son. Kiss the son. And then notice that last line, what it says. Blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in him. You know what you need to know before the end of your life? It's that last line. It's to be blessed that all who take refuge in him. So my hope and my prayer for you today is that you could say that I've turned from my sin, that I've turned from my sin, and I've trusted in Christ, and I'm finding my refuge in him. I want to give a time of response. If there's any, anything you need to work out with between you and the Lord, if you've, if you've realized, like, man, I've never kissed the sun in that sense, the beauty, or even if you find yourself being the one who hypocritically kisses the sun, The hope of the gospel is that you can come to him. As long as today is called today, turn and find freedom. So just take a minute and reflect upon that, and then I will close us out. Father, thank you that you haven't just left the nations to themselves. But God, you haven't just said we're going to be destroyed under your just wrath. What you've done is far more amazing. Is you've said, I will, Lord Jesus, you took on our, our wrath, what was deserved for us. And you've given us the smile of God. What a, what a glory. What a beautiful message of hope and salvation in no other name than in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for your grace and your kindness toward us. Thank you, Lord, for, for sinners and rebels and hypocrites. We pray, Lord, that you give us the grace we need today to turn back to you. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.